0: Three, two,
1: one.
2: Here we go. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome everybody to episode one hundred and thirty-nine of the No Normal Show, brought to you by Revive. This is where we leave all things status quo, traditional, old school and boring in the dust and celebrate the new, the powerful, the innovative the future, all related to how brands can lead the way in health. I'm your co-host, Chris Bevelo, Chief Brand Officer at Revive. I'm joined, as always, by co-host, Stephanie Wirwell, who's SVP of Integrated Marketing at Revive. Hello again, Stephanie.
3: Hello, Chris. Good to be here.
2: Glad to have you back. And again, we have with us, as per usual, co-host, show's producer, Senior Marketing Manager at Revive, Chase Kleckner. Hello, Chase. Hey, Chris. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, yeah. Glad to be back with you guys. And also with our guest, we have a special guest, Tara Carlock. Tara is a content and strategy enthusiast whose healthcare experience gives her great insight into the hearts and minds of consumers. As a content strategist here at Revive, Tara jumps in on all things content strategy, social strategy, and writing. Her years of healthcare experience have made her a champion for some of the unsung heroes in healthcare, like nurse midwives and nurse practitioners. Tierra, so great to have you with us.
0: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. It's such an honor. I've never done anything like this before, so I'm excited.
2: Nobody has said it's an honor before, so we'll (laughs) wait and see if it actually is an honor at the end check back in and see if you still feel that way. But we're really (laughs) glad you're here. We have a lot to dig in with you. Um, You just got some fascinating research to share with us that um, just opened so many questions and also is so important. So we're going to dig into that. But first, as we were preparing for this for this episode, uh, for some reason, we started talking about how much TikTok we were on and whether we were on TikTok. And it led one of us to open up our screen time uh, data on our iPhones, which opened a whole world of questions. And so we thought we'd spend just a little bit of time. We did this like six months ago. Uh, So we're going to revisit screen time real quick. And we're going to have a little contest. And we were trying to decide who wins or who loses, like what that even means here. But we're going to start with looking at our screen time and looking at our daily average. So I'm going to go around the horn and ask people to share what their daily average of screen time is for this week. So we're using this week. Tara, I'm going to, since you're our guest, I'm going to ask you first what are you showing on your, in hours and minutes, your daily average?
0: My daily average, I am at 10 hours and three minutes, and I'm ooh, i up 30% from last week, so I'm not proud of that.
2: Okay, so 10 hours. That's impressive. That is. (laughs) is. Stephanie, what do you have?
3: I have been working really hard on this. I think we talked about this last time. This has been a focus (laughs) of mine. So after working really, really hard, I'm down to two hours and 42 minutes. But um, I started up on the five and six hour ranges, so lots of progress.
1: Wow, that That's is nice. a lot of progress. That is. Chase. Half. Yes, Chase, what do you have? Mine is two hours and 57 minutes. Wow, you guys. So just oh my a gosh. little bit north of, of <laughs> Stephanie. My total screen time for the week, though, right now is is close to 15 hours. If, well, that makes sense if you do the math. I feel like I'm, yes. winning and I'm losing.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Chase. Chase did, yeah. some, mad, <laughs> did some, some weird Three math for us. Three times wars. five. That's right. Mine is five hours and one minute, which is down. I usually am somewhere in the, in the five hour range, Um, which just, it just feels like a lot. I saw uh, our friend, Scott Galloway, who we love and follow posted something that the average screen time in America is like four hours on your phone. Um, That's a lot when you count everybody. And I don't know like how many people was counting, but that was the national average, which was up from like 30 minutes 10 years ago or 20 years ago or something like that, Um, which makes sense, right? Okay, so I guess the winner is Tiara, or the winner is Stephanie. I don't know. Whoever
0: we you're both winners on this show.
2: <laughs> okay,
3: here's the thing that's always interesting about this exercise is I it, sometimes I think should I add up my screen time total screens laptop, yeah. desktop, TV, phone because if I did that it would Yikes. easily be over 24 hours, <laughs> like because of the multitasking. So anyway, it's hard to determine winners and losers, but fun, fun exercise.
2: Well, okay. So, so one more little little part of this. Um, The other thing that was interesting and what I think I was talking about it was my TikTok use has dropped and it's in complete correlation with my, my jumping back into Twitter about a month ago, because when I look at my most used Twitter is second in terms of time, number one is Safari. So that's probably the true for most people. Um, your browser, but Twitter is second at three hours and 43 minutes total this week. TikTok's all the way down to 40 minutes. I've only spent 40 minutes on TikTok in the entire week. Now, before Twitter, that would have been low for the day. 40 minutes of TikTok. I would have spent easily 40 minutes of TikTok a day. So do you guys have any kind of neat story or surprise when you look at your most used?
1: Of the 15 hours? Half of it is YouTube. Whoa. I, so I spend... It's not even on my next... list.
2: YouTube's not even... If I expand my list, it's not even on there. Yep.
3: Is that related it's... to your to you having small children, Chase? Or is no, it solo? No, this is personal okay. usage.
2: Whoa, so now you just <laughs> call Chase if... a small child.
1: <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. No, I don't watch any kids' shows on my phone. Um, actually, that is a good, great question, though, but... No, this is personal usage. I listen to a lot of podcasts, actually, through YouTube, oddly enough. Oh. Um, so that's a lot of the that's link. But I a lot of my entertainment is through YouTube.
2: What about you, Tiara? What do you got?
0: Um, Everything's pretty on par. I didn't know that I had spent two hours on Waze this week, the navigation app, especially since Google Maps is my preferred. I don't even remember doing that. Sometimes oh. I think apps <laughs> open. <laughs>
2: It's probably in your background. You should check that. I might be draining yeah. your battery or something.
0: Stephanie? Yeah, I spent 15 minutes on TikTok, so I feel good about that.
3: Oh.
0: Only 15. So
3: my tic- my TikTok has increased. That's my surprise. But actually, not really. The reason I jumped back on TikTok after taking a break is because of Encanto. So mm-hmm. I really enjoy all the, the – we don't talk about Bruno um, parodies and then Mariano's walk. If anybody out there has seen that, that is just – just a split second in the movie which has taken off on tiktok and i enjoy doing mariana's walk on a daily basis here when i (laughs) am by myself so that's why my tiktok is so high
2: got it well that's all fascinating we should we should check in every once in a while just to see the only thing i don't quite understand is in my most used my podcast doesn't show up anywhere and i probably spend more time listening to podcasts than anything else to do on my phone so i'm not sure why it's not showing up In the most used um that's weird oh there it is 18 minutes that's just wrong that's just wrong last week i I mean i I burned through like eight podcast episodes this weekend trying to catch up
1: oh well maybe that would yeah that would have been last week right yeah but i'm looking at i I switched to last week because i couldn't find
2: it on this week i'm like what's happening all right let's move on from that fascinating topic and let's talk about something way more important Uh, We have talked before about the importance moving forward in our business of branding and marketing and communications, of understanding diverse audiences, uh, really getting in in whatever it is you're trying to market, to talk to people about what message you're trying to deliver. The more you can understand those segments that are important to you, uh, the better you're going to be. And this is, you know, that sounds like something out of a textbook from you know, 1985, but the truth is this has become so much more um, focused on in the last few years for all kinds of reasons um, because of what happened in 2020 with George Floyd and a lot of the social justice issues, obviously because of what's happened uh, with COVID and how that has impacted uh, communities that have always suffered from health disparities and health inequities. So in our field, if you're a, a brand that's trying to lead the way in health, you have to understand uh, diverse populations. And so we have Tiara here because she's been working on some research uh, that she shared with the agency and it's not complete yet, it's not finished, but there's enough in here that we thought we we should just start having deeper conversations about this on the show. Uh, It's part of the book we have coming out. One of the predictions is all about health disparities and we'll be diving into that more later. So uh, we just wanted to have Tiara on the show to, to kind of share Uh, some of the highlights and we have a discussion around it. So we're going to talk about two different communities. We're going to talk about the Hispanic Latino community, and then uh, we're going to talk about the Black community. So let's start with the Hispanic Latino community. And Tara, why don't you share, uh, just start with something that you think is really important for folks to know, and then we'll uh, dive in with
0: conversation. Sure. Thank you. So yeah, in in doing this project, I I really tried to approach it as a learning opportunity because as a Black woman myself, I have, of course, an insider perspective of what it's like to be a Black consumer. So in starting my research, I started with the Hispanic and Latino community. I don't know many Hispanic and Latino people, so I really wanted to take the opportunity to learn them as people and just as consumers. So starting with, I, I took the perspective of you know, starting with their identity, who are they, what are the things they like, how do they navigate their home lives, their work lives, everywhere in between, and got some really interesting uh, perspectives that I pulled out from research about who they are. So from my understanding in doing the research, Hispanic and Latinos are a very young, multicultural, especially now bicultural and family-oriented people. They have a large presence in the United States They are not a race, which is important to remember. They're a diverse group of people who can track their origins from into any one of 20 Latin American countries and Spain. As of 2020, one in six people living in the United States is Hispanic and Latino, which makes it even more important for us as healthcare marketers and just people to do our due diligence in seeing this group, which is also the second largest ethnic group in the united states and the second largest growing minority group behind asian americans but just to speak to their identity more from what i learned they're a va- very family oriented people they value these close relationships these shared cultural experiences especially for immigrants and children and grandchildren of immigrants they're very important shared experiences there's immeasurable value in being around and living with people who you know, whose lives are like yours, whose lives reflect yours. As a very family oriented people, they tend to live in larger households and family takes up a lot of their time, which sometimes can limit those opportunities to devote time to any external efforts or external groups and communities that they may be a part of. But with a growing population in the United States, and as Hispanic and Latino culture becomes way more recognized, way more acknowledged, and way more integrated into the American landscape, I mean, they're honestly becoming the American landscape, that family makeup and that household makeup can change. So you can have undocumented immigrants who have citizen children and grandchildren all living in the same household, but that very unique experience for this group creates linguistic and cultural barriers of their own. It definitely impacts the way they navigate any American system, not just healthcare. And it impacts how they see themselves in the fabric of America entirely.
2: Yeah. There's just so much in there. And I don't even know where to start. I think that one of the things that you shared that that speaks to this too, and I think it, boy, when you, when you think about the statement, the idea of calling um or, or or having hispanic and latino americans embrace you know what you've got in your in your research the 200 percent identity so thinking about them as 100 hispanic latino and 100 percent american and as you said um you know that distinction is going to kind of change because they are becoming I mean, they, they have been part of america right um we don't want to. We don't want to go where some other folks have gone. I'm trying to separate that out, but that there's this kind of like we're Americans, but we're also this separate group. And I think that's at the heart of what you're talking about here.
0: Yes, and and I I was unfamiliar with the term 200 yeah. percenters. So in this research, of course, I, I learned so much, so much more, and I I'm so grateful for the opportunity to do something like this for Revive. But in them being 200 percenters, they consider themselves. Of course 100 hispanic and latino and 100 american and it's such a different way of assimilating than perhaps their immigrant grandparents or parents did when they came to the united states i remember reading an article um, from nbc news about people who considered themselves 200 percenters and there was this one woman who said uh, she's afro cuban specifically so she is both black and hispanic latino And she said that one something that she feels like was a missed opportunity because of the way that her parents and grandparents came to the United States is not teaching her Spanish. And when she spoke with her father about it, he explained that because of his, of course, fear, innate fear of coming to a completely foreign place and sticking out, he wanted to make that assimilation experience easier for her, easier for her siblings and any children that she might have. So that part of his identity was repressed as he felt for his safety. But for his daughter, she felt like it was something that she missed out on because she, like 92% of Hispanic and Latinos in the United States, find it important to maintain that cultural connection, no matter where that origin group traces back to. So I just thought that was something really interesting. They, she, it, I didn't get from her that she felt any more or less Hispanic or Latino, but she recognized that what her father and probably what many other immigrants did was kind of some sort of a trauma response to what they might've faced in the United States. So it's, it's totally understandable. Yeah.
1: You brought up multi-generational homes, which I think is a really fascinating dynamic, especially when it comes to healthcare. Cause I can only imagine the the varying opinions that are in that household of how to navigate healthcare Should you do it on your own? Should you go to in-person clinics? What do they think about virtual care? Just like all the different dynamics and preferences that have to live in that household can only be confusing, you know, Mm -hmm. from, for most people. So I think that is also a dynamic, um, that they're navigating from living in a
0: multi-generational home. Mm Mm-hmm. Not just. Yes, a- oh, sorry. Go ahead, Stephanie. No, no,
3: no go ahead. Go ahead. Taylor. I was going to
0: say that's interesting that you brought that up. Um, just thinking from not only a generational perspective, but when you think about undocumented immigrants and their citizen children and grandchildren, imagine you have an undocumented parent who does not have access to things like Medicare, Medicaid. They can't engage with the healthcare care marketplace and such, but their citizen children can but as an immigrant parent you are afraid of navigating any kind of american institution for fear that your undocumented status may be revealed so it and it's it's not an indictment of the parent because obviously they come to the united states searching better conditions and better opportunity but their children lose out on that access and healthcare that they need so it's a very interesting and honestly kind of sad dynamic when you think about it because i'm i'm a citizen i don't i don't have to worry about those kind of things so it, it just brings into perspective for all of us how difficult it may be just, just to be here in the United States.
3: The other interesting um, implication of, you know, in, in many cases, larger households with multiple generations is the importance of um, turning to peers and family members for guidance and advice. And I think you shared, maybe you can mention a little bit of this, Tiara, in some of your research, just that with this audience, there tends to be um, an uh, affiliation for more kind of holistic remedies and things that can be done at home. Um But I just wonder if there's a connection there on, you know, it it is a common practice for many to turn to their mothers or fathers or grandparents for health advice. But I wonder if this is even more the case with this audience. Can you share just a little bit about what you found around um, how they approach their health?
0: So for this particular consumer group, and it was interesting for me to learn this too, they take a very self-sufficient approach to healthcare. They're very distrusting of medical professionals, especially in some of the new settings that we are seeing emerge in the American landscape, like telehealth and retail health centers and at CVS and Walgreens and things like that. So they really prefer to, you know, avoid these traditional medical settings for as long as they possibly can, which to my understanding is absolutely rooted in their cultural practices and methods. You have santerias and you have curanderos. They are native healers and shamans, and they administer these holistic and spiritistic remedies to their people. So that is what they most, in my opinion, would resort to first before engaging with the American healthcare system that, you know, in the context of any other American you know area they're not welcome they're not understood and they're approaching these systems with fear so it's natural to stay in words and kind of navigate the healthcare system yourself now what i did find is that they while they have this overall distrust of medical professionals setting is really important so they are going to be more likely to engage with a doctor in a doctor's office than they will in a telehealth capacity or than they will in a, <clears throat> excuse me, in a retail health center in places like that. So for for them to be such a self-sufficient people, you you have to wonder kind of, or not kind of, you don't have to wonder where the disconnect is between what we have going on and what we're seeing emerge, especially in the pandemic. But those aren't resources that they feel like it's safe for them to use.
2: All right, so we get, we're gonna have to have you back because there's so much more we can dive into. It's it's kind of even, it's hard to even get into anything into the depth we need to in the time we have. But we want to get to the black consumer too because you also uh, dug deep yes. there as well. So why don't you share some of your, um, some of your takeaways there.
0: Yes, for the black consumer, so just I, I I approach this part of my research just thinking about the way that I and my family and friends have navigated the healthcare system. And of course, there's not the same caveat when you have to consider, you know, your immigration and citizenship status here in the United States. But distrust of American healthcare and American systems in general also applies to this group because of centuries of medical mistreatment and medical racism. When we think about things like the Tuskegee experiment and the controversy, uh, controversy around Henrietta Lacks and he lost cells and how to date her family still hasn't profited from this you know, great medical endeavor that saved so many lives, but ultimately couldn't save her own. So I'm thinking, or I, when I'm researching about Black consumers, I'm seeing that we turn inwards as well. So we are a very community-based people, whether it's our family, our friends, the black church, any black media channels that we create and engage with, BT, Own, Jet, Essence, Bravo, and things like that. We turn to our internal groups because this is where we are the most safe. It's where the we it's where we are the most vulnerable and the most respected because healthcare has routinely neglected and honestly taken advantage of Black people for multiple reasons that we definitely don't have the time to get into. But Black consumers want to, they're more likely to engage with the American healthcare system, but they, they still have that same hesitancy of, you know, are, are people even going to understand me? Are they going to judge things like my food choices? Is a doctor even available around me if I live in a rural or, you know, pretty underserved, underrepresented area? So that distrust is the same, but Black Americans want to be proven wrong by the healthcare system, but not anyone can do it.
2: Well, I think one of the things we started off talking about was the impact of COVID, um, and if we're talking about health disparities in particular, and a community in in the Black consumer that has just suffered from that more than others uh, undoubtedly in the data that we have that I was just talking to someone in the agency and this is in the book too think through some part of 2021 so you think about like two years of, of the pandemic the life expectancy in the united states dropped I think it's like one and a half years. So if life expectancy on average in the country was I don't even know what it was 72 or 74 it dropped one and a half years for black Americans, it dropped somewhere between three and a half and four years. That is crazy when you think about how much more it is than the average. And just overall, I mean, usually life expectancy moves a matter of a few months, year to year, right? It might go up a little, might go down a little, uh, but to to drop that much that quickly, uh, just, I think like says more than anything else. Some of the Difficulties this group has faced and still faces.
0: Yeah, these these are significant difficulties and and that's a great point that you brought up the impact of covid because black consumers and Hispanic and Latino consumers have been, you know, the most some of the most disproportionately affected groups, honestly, for no other reasons than lack of cultural compet- competency among providers, lack of access in certain neighborhoods and things that they live in. And the it, it, it hurts, you know, in doing this research, it, it hurts because these things are totally solvable. These things are unavoidable if if the care was actually given to these people as people and not as quote unquote others from the rest of America. They are just as much as part of America as Asian Americans and white, non-Hispanic Americans are, and they, they simply don't receive that level of care. I, I was reading about the Black consumer specifically, and there is sort of this cool factor that Black people have as consumers. You know, we, we have a $300 billion value purchasing power, and we, you know, pretty much, whatever we engage with as Black consumers, it's what everyone else is going to start engaging with. But this cool factor, this halo effect doesn't go to places where it matters you know more honestly in healthcare uh, i read that black americans receive 20 or received 26% less spending on healthcare initiatives but they're spending more about 19% more on in-hospital services and 12% more on emergency services so they're they're relying on ems's and and emergency medical care for routine care because they simply don't have the access to primary care as their white, non-Hispanic counterparts. So they're spending more, but they're not receiving more attention. And it's not because they're not spending more. They're right there. They have these healthcare needs. They have these dire needs. They're just not being listened to. They're, they're People are refusing to acknowledge them. Yeah.
3: Tia, you bring up something really, really interesting around, um, I think sometimes it's discussed, uh, you know, the importance of DEI from a business standpoint is absolutely proven. However, sometimes health systems think about margin and business differently than mission, and sometimes DEI efforts are put in the mission bucket. But you bring up something really important, which is the spending power is absolutely there, not to mention Black Americans lead culture. So focusing your efforts on Black Americans not just from a marketing standpoint but from an operations and a patient experience standpoint can have extreme business benefits that I think is often missed because it's just put in this mission charitable category which is really a problem.
2: Yeah, I just want to echo that like, you know, we do talk a lot about health disparities and health inequities and that's a real problem that needs to be solved, but it's not the it's not the singular filter that we should be using for this community. Um, you just, both of you just pointed out, right. There's, and I would imagine Tara as part of that community that you don't always want to be like the conversation is always coming back to that. Cause it's such a, it's so real and it's a real problem, but it's also, you don't want to live under a negative you know, filter for everything. There's, there's so many positive mm-hmm. things um, in positive ways. That black consumers contribute, can lead brands, all the things you're talking about. So I just think it's really important that you guys went there.
0: Yeah, and then and that that reflects in my own personal life. I, you know, I was talking with my mom about, you know, the work I'm doing at Revive and it's this project specifically. And it made me kind of harken back to a story she told me a couple years ago about her experience even giving birth to me. So this is my midwifery experience coming out. Black women are three to four times more likely to die of pregnancy-related causes than their white, non-Hispanic counterparts. And in talking to my mom and just her story with my birth, she gave birth in a hospital. And she ended up having to have an emergency C-section with me because my umbilical cord was wrapped around my neck. I was losing oxygen very fast, very quickly. It was getting very, very dire. And she kept telling her nurses and those attending her that something was wrong, but they, you know, flat out ignored her. One of them even walked out of the room on her while she was talking about it. And that could have, that could have killed me. I, I wouldn't even be here at this moment if, if she hadn't had to so fervently and Avidly stand up for herself. But Black women and Black people shouldn't have to do that. We're, we're, we're just basically being ignored even when we do say something. So we have to remember that the, the onus is not on Black people or even Hispanic and Latino people or any other community of color to advocate for themselves. Healthcare providers are su- supposed to provide healthcare to anyone, no matter what. And it's simply doesn't happen. So it's, it's on them to make sure that they do that for us. It's not on us to make them do that for us. Yeah.
3: Yeah. That's so fascinating because as we were having some of these discussions, you know, for the last several weeks and and beyond as, as you've been digging into these things, um, I know you, um, you were mentioning that sometimes in, in culture, even, even advice to black women is to stand up for yourselves and that, that that is unfortunate that, that 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 advice has to be given when, to your point, it should not. The onus is not on you know others for standing up for themselves. It's the trust that should be there with providers. So I think that's just right. so critical.
0: We already know how to stand up for ourselves because we have yeah. to. We have yeah. no choice.
2: Yeah. Uh, th- this is just such important stuff. And we're, Terry, we will have you back because there's so much more we can dig into. Yeah. Uh, And I think as we have conversations that revive uh, as we've launched a new brand in the fall and we talk about we're here to help not only figure out the future but shape it, this is a huge part of that. Again, as I said at the beginning, understanding our audiences, uh, particularly in healthcare, particularly those audiences that have um, really not gotten the attention or the care that they've deserved historically, so important moving forward. If you want to have a brand that's going to succeed, we're going to have to do that. And there's just so many questions. I mean, I'm just going to leave this question hanging in the air. Don't even try to answer it. One of the things that just blew my mind, and it shouldn't, um, but it just hit me because we're having all these conversations, when you shared your deck, and, and obviously folks can't see that, but you shared all of the nationalities of folks that make up the Hispanic Latino community. And the other things we're talking about, And you get to the point where like it's not even sufficient to target Hispanic Latino because because my joke is that's like saying we're going to target humans on Earth. It's so broad. There's so many different dynamics and dimensions of that group. You've shared some of the commonalities, which are important, but but we have to keep moving. We have to go. We have to go even further. Right. We have to get uh get to a point where we're really thinking about and, and understanding and targeting to groups at an even more um, disparate and minute level if we want to be successful. So there's just so much work to do. Uh, and if we do this right, it's going to fundamentally change how we approach brands and health and marketing. So that's why we're so focused on it because that's where the future is. So I'm just going to leave it there so there's a lot more we can come back to, Tara. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It was great. It, it still is an honor. that's good.
2: That's good. <laughs> Stephanie and Chase, as always, thank you. Thank
1: yeah. you. Yeah, of course. Yeah.
2: Well, everybody, thank you for listening. If you've got something you want us to uh, talk about, let us know. We had a listener let us know that they wanted to hear more about. Uh, audiences that are important to health brands beyond the consumer. So we've got uh, podcasts slated for I don't know a few weeks from now. We'll dive into B2B audiences, payers, uh, you name it, physicians in many cases. So that's that's an example of one we got coming up. If you wanna you wanna put one on the table, let us know. Send us an email at no normal at reviveagency.com. We would love to hear that. Anything else you want to share with us, feedback we we want to hear it. Make sure you give us a reviewer rating on iTunes. That's always appreciated. Share this out. And remember, don't be satisfied with the normal. Push the no normal and everything that you do. Thank you so much for joining. And we will talk to you next week. Three, two.